The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So I would invite you now to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are picking up on verse 18 today. We left off verse 17. We'll go 18 to 25. I'm going to read that if you follow along as I read. Uh, We're not necessarily going to get through all of those verses today. It is so rich and so meaty. Uh, A couple of people have asked since I started Corinthians about over a month ago, are are we going to go through the whole book of Corinthians? And more than one person has asked that. And I said, well, of course. Absolutely. That's how it was written. Paul wrote this as a letter. It'd be no different than you getting a, like a letter from your mother, right? You start in the beginning, don't you? And you read the whole thing and you go in order and you take everything in context and then you go all the way till you finish. Uh, so that's what these were. These 13 letters that Paul wrote were letters intended to be read from the beginning to the end. It's the, actually the only legitimate way to read it and understand it. It's a good reminder for us because it is common practice for many folks to just open the Bible, put your finger somewhere, pull a verse out of context, and because Corinthians is kind of long, it's 16 chapters in our English Bible, it's easy to just go there, find a verse that you think you like, and then interpret it out of context and you read what it says. And you might not even know what Paul was really saying because you're not reading it in the context in which it was given. So thank you. God used those folks who asked me, are we going to go through of the whole book of Corinthians. I think they were saying that because they were excited to go through the whole book of Corinthians. That's, that's the way I took it. That was my spin. Oh, yeah, they're excited. So we're just going to do that. That's how Paul wrote it. And we want to understand what he had to say and to these Corinthians. And we're going to be blessed as a result. So follow along with me as I read our passage of the day. Paul's making a transition now. He did some introduction. Uh, he commends them for their faith. He, he's assuming that they're true believers. So he greeted them very graciously and kindly in the name of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, he got right into the issues at hand. And the issues were problems in that church. And so now he's continuing in an argument that he started, mostly of reminders with the intent of trying to fix their problems and expose their errors. And so that's where verse 18 picks up. It's in the middle of an argument that Paul is making. So we need to understand it in context. Follow along as I read 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men 18 to 25 if you're paying close attention 
There are some words that Paul uses repeatedly in verses 18 to 25. He's going to continue using it on into chapter 2. One of the key words there is wise or wisdom. Wise, wisdom, knowledge, gnosis in the Greek. Uh, the Greeks were infatuated with gnosis or knowledge. And Corinth was a city in Greece. Athens, its neighbor, 50 miles away, was infatuated with gnosis or knowledge or human knowledge or philosophy or aspiring to attain intellectual superiority through thinking and logic and observation and so on and so forth. So wise, wisdom is a key word through verses 18 to 25. Sometimes Paul uses it in a negative way and sometimes he uses it in a positive way. Sometimes he uses it to refer to the wisdom, which is really nonsense of the world, but the unbelieving world considers their wisdom superior or true knowledge. And sometimes Paul uses the word wise in reference to God, where indeed it is true spiritual biblical wisdom. So uh, that's one of the main themes. That I don't want you to get lost as we go through verse by verse here in terms of main themes is God is talking about true wisdom, wisdom that comes from God, and then a false pseudo-counterfeit wisdom that is in the world and so highly uh, prevalent in our world. Uh, Just prior to this context in verse 18, just remember the context there from pretty much verse 10 to 17, because we can't forget the context because 18 to 25 goes with 10 to 17. Verse 17 is a transitional verse in this argument, so don't forget it. So look at verse 17 before we jump into verse 18. The context of verse 10 to 17 was division, 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 division. Paul starts out this letter saying... Man, this, I can't believe it. It's been three years since I started this church. I'm getting word. This church is divided. This is the church that I started. This, this is the church that God had me pastor for a year and a half. This is a church that I used blood, sweat, and tears to preach and serve and cared for you and knew many of you by name and personally and praying for you. And uh, God did a great work there in Corinth. And now three years later, we've got this great dissension. That's now become your reputation from believers who are leaving your church and your area coming to me. Just this division, this factious party spirit that's splintered the church from within. Believers at the necks and the throats of other believers with contrived loyalties to certain affiliations and party groups and human beings. And Paul was greatly grieved greatly grieved by this division and infighting because Paul's favorite word metaphor and analogy of being saved in the saved community was the body the body of Christ what is a body a body is one whole one integrated interdependent unified beautifully complementary self-complementary functioning whole Every one part needs the other. Every one part is working together with each other, all in subservience to the head, Jesus Christ, the head of the body. That's what Paul's favorite term and reference for the saved community was, was the body. And the very antithesis of that was division within that body. So there's there's nothing that could grieve a pastor's heart more than this. When your sheep, the people you love, where you used to pastor, professing believers are at each other's throats and divided in little schisms within the church. And so division is the key word in verses 10 to 17. Now he wants to bring a remedy to division in the church. 
in a powerful way. And the way he's going to do that, he's going to talk about wisdom in verses 18 to 25 and following and also preaching. So he's going to continue his argument of how to overcome division in the church, practically speaking. Well, how do we apply this to GBF? Well, uh, we're going to be, we're a church. Satan is real. He is the devil. He's on the prowl. He's a vicious lion. One of his main goals is to bring division and create division, create division in fam- immediate families, create division in the church. That's what he does. And when he does it, he is successful. Turning siblings against each other. The beloved become enemies of one another, division. So, and Satan puts all of his energy, first and foremost, towards the church of Christ wherever it exists. And we, GBF, are a church of Jesus Christ, one church of many churches. And as a result, he is going to be relentless in his pursuit and his attack on GBF and the believers in it to turn them against each other and create division. So seeds of division and nurture those seeds of division. So 1 Corinthians is a great book. It's practical. It's got practical application in every single chapter for us to apply. Okay, how do we apply this to ongoing division we have right now in the church between members of our church? And also, how can we apply these principles regarding division to be preventative, to protect our church, to keep it from happening? So there's something for everybody, if you're a Christian, in this letter of Corinthians, whether you're a leader in the church, a teacher in the church, a member of the church, a person attending the church, just a Christian. We have to contend with division. It's not just Satan's fault, by the way, although he is the great divider and destroyer. We do just fine in and of ourselves to create division among one another because we have indwelling sin. Even Christians almost comes naturally to us because our natural propensity is to serve and love self. And when we are focused on self, at the cost of considering the needs of others, inevitably we will create division with other people. So this is, this is just so practical and a blessing to us as believers. And so my challenge to you is, as you read through this, as you walk away hearing the Word and reading the Word with me, be thinking, okay, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me to apply this to my own personal life and help me apply this in our church to the best of my ability and wherever I go as a Christian, especially as I interface and mingle with other believers. God doesn't want division in his church. Stop being divided, Paul said earlier in that passage. And by the way, just a reminder, the mark of spiritual maturity. I had a short list. And I were to ask believers, okay, pop quiz, give me the top three marks of spiritual maturity. In the church. Well, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, one of the hallmarks of spiritual immaturity is unity among the brethren. Unity, which is the opposite of division. Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? And that's a good gauge and barometer of your spiritual maturity. So with that, as Paul's continuing on now, okay, we got division, I recognized it, and here's what it looks like, here's how it was manifest. There were at least four groups, uh, those who followed Paul, those who said they were uh, apostles of Apollos, those who were apostles, uh, followers of Cephas or Peter, and those who said we were of Christ. And so there's at a minimum four factions in the church. And so now 
Uh, he commands them to stop doing that. That is unbiblical. And now he's going to specifically tell them how they can implement that by way of a reminder. They need to be reminded of the reason the Corinthians at this point had such a problem with division had in part to do with where they came from and the culture in which they lived. And whether you like it or not, every single one of us, in one way or another, to one degree or another, we are kind of influenced and a byproduct of the culture in which we live. And that was true of the Corinthians, especially those who were born and raised in Corinth. Um, it was situated on this island that was only about six miles wide, and you got this major port to the left, a major port to the right, and you've got uh, Asia and the whole world over there to the west, and then to the east you've got uh, Italy and the whole world over there and Rome and you've got people coming and going you've got all kinds of people from all over the world all over the landscape of Corinth and bringing their influences from all over the world and so Corinth by nature was a cosmopolitan and a very diverse city but it was also became a very corrupt city it became a very wealthy city and we've talked about that already uh, but also a key thing about the city of Corinth is it was in Greece and the Greeks had a long history of a reputation for good reason. Being Greeks, they were the descendants of the great thinkers, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so many other uh, Greek philosophers who were praised for their intellectual uh, prowess and wisdom, human wisdom, I should say. And that was true of Corinth. Corinth was in Greece. It was it bought into the legacy of the early philosophers, the Greeks. And so they aspired to wisdom. As a matter of fact, how would you get saved if you're a Greek? You are saved through wisdom. You are saved through intellectual pursuit. Boy, that kind of can apply to the Silicon Valley, right? Your smarts is what makes you significant. Your smarts is what saves you. Your smarts is what moves you ahead in society. And that was true of Greek culture. So the Corinthians, the Corinthians were first and foremost of the Greek culture. So they worshipped at the altar of gnosis, of wisdom, of intellectual pursuit, erudition, and all that went with it, along with the, not just the content of it, but also the presentation of it and the methodology, the eloquence, the rhetoric, the, the methodology, the trappings that went with the delivery that had to be precise and was done with great precision. It was a, almost a show in terms of what a great orator you could be. Moving the emotions of your audience. And so in this Greek culture in the city of Corinth, you had philosophers that were the icons of society and looked up to, and they were the heroes. They were the superstars. They were the NBA superstars. They were the football and sports superstars, the Hollywood superstars. If you had a uh, a sports card today of uh, your favorite athlete back then, they had little sports cards of Socrates and Plato and, and a gazillion other philosophers. That's the thing. Everybody had their own personal philosophy. There wasn't just one unifying philosophy in Greece or in Corinth. There were a zillion. He had as many philosophies as there were philosophers or even self-proclaimed philosophers long before there were personal blogs of all these people writing blogs who want to talk about how wise they are. And I'm not against blogs, but there's a lot of blogs out there. The Greeks were doing this, but they didn't have blogs. But they were professing great wisdom and people would align themselves behind certain men. See, that was the key. They were man followers. Oh, so-and-so, the philosopher at this school, said this. And so you've got the Greeks and the Corinthians aligning themselves behind multitudinous individual men because they align with his philosophy. I am a follower of this philosopher. I'm a follower of Aristotle. I'm a follower of Plato. I'm a follower of Pythagoras. I'm a follower of whatever. That's where your allegiance was. And it became very divided in the Greek culture. 
And that's how the Corinthians were raised. That was normal. Everybody had a mentor. Everybody had a, a guru. Who's your guru? Oh, my guru is better than your guru. Who's your guru? My guru can beat up your guru. My guru is smarter than your guru. My guru's IQ is higher than your guru's IQ. And so they became divided. So this division and this allegiance to manly wisdom that became multitudinous was carried over from the unbelieving Corinthians into the Corinthian church after they got saved. And they start practicing this very secular, worldly allegiance and methodology of following a man and not following God and God alone in the person of Jesus Christ. So it only took less than three years for all these man-centered allegiances to quickly formulate. Oh, I am of Paul. I am of Peter. I am of so-and-so. I am of Christ. And they became divided. So that's what Paul's dealing with here. This is not a superficial problem. This is inbred. This is in their DNA. This is in their history. It's got hundreds and hundreds of years behind it. It is rife throughout the entire culture. One little letter by the Apostle Paul is not going to solve this problem. We know it wasn't going to because it didn't solve the problem. And that's why he wrote at least two other letters. That's why he had to make more than one visit there. And it still didn't solve the problem. So that's the background to all this division. So the Corinthians get saved. They become a part of the one body of Christ. They're saved from this culture that is totally man-centered. And you follow a man, you worship a man, which is totally contrary to when you become a Christian. You worship God and God alone. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who saved you. No human being saved you. No human message saved you. No human methodology saved you. No rhetoric saved you or eloquence. It was God and God alone and His methodology and His methodology alone that has saved you and changed you. And this is what the Corinthians forgot. They forgot who they were, they forgot what they were saved from, and they forgot how they got saved. In a nutshell, that is the essence, what I just said, of the meaning of verses 18 to 25. Paul is now going to remind the Corinthians what they got saved from, how they got saved, who saved them. Because what they carried over from their Greek past, one of the things they also carried over, uh, aside from this man-centered allegiance and pursuing human wisdom, or actually was human wisdom. And that man, and human wisdom, the essence of human wisdom that he keeps talking about and taking on head on verse 18 to 25, human wisdom is that man can improve himself. Man can improve himself. Man can pull him up by his own boot, himself by his own bootstraps. Uh, man is the solution to the problem. They put too much credibility in the powers of humanity. That's why from Greek culture, even in their art that was all over the place, that's why you've got these massive statues made of marble of naked human beings with these bulging muscles and veins. What are they doing? They are, that's showing the allegiance that they gave to the ability of humanity, almost a supernatural power that they attached to the ability of humanity and of man. They had too much confidence in human achievement. And so that was the foolishness of the wisdom that they pursued. So Paul wants to counter that. So let's go ahead and look at his argument to counter this wrong thinking. 
Uh, one of the key words we introduced that the Corinthians carried over from their Greek background, uh, it is in verse, uh, look down at the beginning of the chapter, when he's commending them for they believed the gospel, they got saved, and then God blessed them, he, he got uh, enriched them. Verse 5, when they got saved, they were enriched in Christ. And they were enriched in all speech and in all knowledge. So here, Paul is acknowledging, boy, you Corinthians, you do have a lot of knowledge. You're a privileged People, but that knowledge, that gnosis, they turned it into an idol. They turned it on its ear. And he's going to address this specifically later on in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but here he addresses it as well. Yeah, you have knowledge, but you need to understand knowledge the right way, and you are understanding it the wrong way, and it is creating division in the church. How is this knowledge creating division in the church where they're having these allegiances to different men? Well, knowledge leads to, can lead to pride being puffed up. That's what Paul says in Corinthians as well, that knowledge puffs up. If you think you're smart and you think you're brilliant, you could become arrogant, look down your nose at others who aren't as sharp as you. And this pursuit of human knowledge puffs people up. It makes them prideful. And so that's one of the things that the... Paul's trying to counter here. And when you are a prideful person, that means that you think you're better than everybody else. And as a result, you look down your nose at everybody else. Nobody else is as good as you. And then, oh, but this guy, he's an exception. He can be in my group. Oh, she's an exception. She can be in my clique. And that's how cliques form. Become the, the root of these cliques is pride. Pride and too much confidence in their knowledge, not in the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God would tell them and remind them that you aren't so hot, as a matter of fact, Christian. You know what you are? You're a pathetic, miserable sinner, totally lost on your own. And you need God's help. And that is the only sufficient thing that can save you. That's God's wisdom. That was the exact opposite of Corinthian, Greek, worldly, human wisdom. And so it was the pursuit of knowledge evidenced in the philosophers all around them and human achievement began to help puff them up with pride and form these allegiances, becoming so prideful and arrogant and looking to even at making illegitimate, illegitimate judgments on other people. Even the Apostle Paul, their former pastor and the man who planted the church, they became puffed up and they started murmuring and circulating rumors. And then that got fanned and it got nurtured and it grew and it swelled and it spread like cancer in the church among sinful people. That's what it does until it turned into several factions. And Corinthians are looking down their nose because of their self-serving pride about how knowledgeable and smart they are. I'm even smarter than the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, when Paul came here and preached, he wasn't very smart at all. He didn't talk like the Greeks. He didn't engage in rhetoric. He didn't even know, couldn't quote from Plato. What an idiot. He didn't go to our schools. I heard that he's not even one of the original 12 apostles. He's a Johnny-come-lately. That's why I like Peter. I am of Cephas. I am of Peter. And oh, do you remember when Apollos came into town? After Paul left? Man, Apollos, oh, he, Apollos, he was polished. Trained in the law. Eloquent. Trained by the Greeks. Oh man, he was smooth. Man, I, I want to join the Apollos club. So this came out of prideful arrogance regarding thinking about how smart and intelligent they were. That's what this passage is about. It's about true wisdom and false wisdom. False wisdom is in the world, the unbelieving world. True wisdom resides in the person of God and only with God. And it's only when God reveals that wisdom to his people do those people actually possess true wisdom. On our own, we don't possess true wisdom. It's a gift from God. It is received by faith. 
And today for us it is inscripturated in the Bible. And we're allowed to understand it through faith and the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. That's where true wisdom comes from. As I was studying this week about true wisdom and false wisdom, the wisdom of the world, which is a theme that Paul's going to keep talking about, I, I just stopped and paused and thought, hmm, I wonder who the smartest guy or lady in the world is today. You know, I suspect, I bet that if you Googled who are the smartest people in the world today, a list would probably pop up. And lo and behold, ping, all kinds of lists popped up. The smartest people in the world today, the top ten smartest people in the world today. There are several links. Like my first, how do they know? They don't know everybody. But sure enough, there they were. Now, there were some discrepancies. Number one, I wasn't on any of the lists. I was highly disappointed. But it was good for humility's sake. So I read through a couple of these lists. The top ten smartest living human beings today. Read through them, the top ten. They give a bio of each one. They say why they're so smart or why she's so smart. And then also they give a gauge of why they're considered so smart. One guy was on there that I suspected would be on there before I clicked, and that was Stephen Hawkins. Stephen Hawkins, Hawking, Hawking. He's the uh, scientist who's in the wheelchair and has that uh, debilitating disease. For years he's been considered the smartest man in the world. And sure enough, he was number one on one of the lists that I saw. And the reason he's considered the smartest human being in the world today is because he, this is what it said, because he has revealed to us how the universe works thinking, wow, I thought God did that. I thought the Bible does that. I thought Jesus did that. There weren't any vacancies in that department, but that's what it said in his bio. Then I looked on a couple of other lists. One guy kept coming up on the list in the top three on every single list. So it's undisputed, in my opinion, uh, on two of the lists, he was number one. Here's the smartest human being in the world. Ladies, it's not a woman. I'm sorry. It's a guy according to these lists. Oh, by the way, none of the 10 top smartest people or most intelligent people in the world uh, are on that list because of anything that has to do with Christianity or their moral virtues. So they don't even consider God's point of view of what true wisdom is. It's all humanistic, it's secular, it's pseudo-wisdom, it's false wisdom. Dare I say in the words of James that it is demonic wisdom? A satanic counterfeit? That's the word James uses the wisdom that is not from above, not from heaven, is satanic. But the gauge primarily that they used of the smartest people in the world was your IQ rating based on taking an IQ test. And so the smartest man in the world today with an IQ of 230, 230, and it's increasing by the way, is Terence Tao. Smartest man in the world, most intelligent man, the wisest man in the world. Notice how they link, by the way, wisdom with just sheer intelligence on an IQ test. Well, who's Terence Tao? He is a mathematician of Australian and American roots. He studies currently, this is how smart he is, he studies additive combinatorics, analytic number theory, ergodic Ramsey theory, Harmonic analysis, that is impressive. Harmonic analysis. Partial differential equations and random matrix theory. So he likes the Matrix movie, that's cool. <laughs> uh, he was a recipient of the Fields Medal in 2006. 
Terrence holds the James and Carol Collins Chair in Mathematics at the University of California, UCLA. Now, he's working at UCLA. How smart can that guy be? But anyway, (laughs) just kidding, you Bruins out there. Should be working at Stanford if he was the smartest guy in the world. Just kidding, you Cardinals. Anyway, uh, he has had good training learning math when he was barely a toddler, solving arithmetic problems at two years old, studying, he could probably read this paragraph that I can't read too, studying college-level math at nine and getting a gold medal in the International Math Olympiad when he was 13. He got his PhD when he was only 20 from Princeton University. Okay, he's redeemed himself, Princeton University. And became a full professor at UCLA when he was only 24. The only person, the first person in history at UCLA to do such. He has already published over 230 research papers. There it is, the smartest man in the world. That's based on, well, I want to I give my own IQ test because I want to see how smart y- y'all are here. So here we go. Pop quiz, seven questions. Don't answer out loud. Just write down the answer. You're going to grade your own quiz. This is, I guess you could call this a spiritual IQ test. My question is, could Terrence get these? There's only seven. Why seven? Number, well, two reasons. Number one, we don't have enough time to do ten. And seven is the spiritual number. Here we go. See how you do on the spiritual IQ test. And I would suspect, I don't know, I don't know Terrence, but I bet he would fail my test. And just about every person on that list that I saw of the smartest people in the world, they would fail this test. And I guarantee there are probably some nine-year-olds here at GBF that would get better scores on this spiritual IQ test than those people. So really it comes down to how do you, get, how do you determine what is truly wise? Okay, here we go. Question number one. Short answers, by the way. How and when did everything get here? Write it down. How and when did everything get here? Number two, what is humanity's greatest threat or danger? What is humanity's greatest threat or danger? I know for a fact that Stephen Hawking does not know the correct answer to that question. Number three, where does any person, any person go as soon as they die? Number four, who is God? Number five, this is considered the most difficult question in the history of the universe by the erudite and by the philosophers of the world. Are you ready? But I think if you're a Christian and you know the Bible, you can answer it very simply. Number five, the most difficult question in the world. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? We're almost done. Number six, who is Jesus? I know for a fact that most of those people on that list, they'd, they'd get that question wrong. And then number seven, what is the only solution to all of humanity's problems? What is the only solution to all of humanity's problems? Being an expert and a prodigy in math is not going to help you answer any of those questions. And dare I say that these questions are more important to human beings than the information they're dealing with. Now we've got to grade the quiz. Here we go. Number one, how and when did everything get here? Simply in the beginning, when God created all things in six days. That's what the Bible says. 
Have you said anything like that? Ding! You got it correct. Number two, what is humanity's greatest threat or danger? It's sin. Personal sin. That was the answer. There is no other answer. Got that right? That's what the Bible says. Number three, where does any person go as soon as they die? Either heaven or hell. That was the only acceptable answer according to the Bible. If you said that, you got it correct. Number four, who is God? That's a loaded question, Pastor Cliff. I know. But I said keep it short. I just put the holy triune creator of the universe. You got triune in there. That's key. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's kind of the distinctive of what the Bible says about God. There is no way anybody who has not been given revelation from God can know who God is. You can't figure out that God is triune through mere speculation or observance of the world and the universe or looking through a microscope or a telescope. That can't happen. It must be revealed. All of this truth can only be known by the revelation of God, of Him giving it to us, Him being the initiator. And that's the contrast and the difference between human wisdom and spiritual wisdom, God's wisdom, Biblical wisdom. It is revelation given to us. It is not inherent in us. Okay, hardest question in the world. See how you did. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Three words. Sin, Satan, the curse. That's it. Everything falls under that umbrella. Sin, Satan, curse. That's the answer. Number six, who is Jesus? I just put God in a body. God became a man. Emmanuel, God is with us. Number seven, what is the only salvation, what is the only solution to all of humanity's problems? The answer is the gospel. That's it. That's what Paul is going to argue here. This is the theme by which Paul is arguing. You forgot Corinthians in your pursuit of gnosis and knowledge. You forgot the gospel. You forgot what saved you. You forgot how it was presented. You forgot most importantly the content of it. And who initiated it? So let's go ahead and look at verse 18. I provided an outline for you there, and, and the title I've given to 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 18 to 25 is the preeminence of preaching. Because Paul uses the word preaching. He uses up to three different words describing biblical preaching in this passage, by the way, starting in verse 17 when he says, uh, when he contrasts the cleverness of worldly speech, which is human rhetoric that the Greek specialized in, he talked about how he preaches the gospel. He uh, that's the word for evangelism or euangelizo. Uh, he's a messenger of good news, an angel of good news. And he does that. He verbalizes that good news message. That's verse 17. Um, and then he uses different other synonyms for preaching all throughout this passage. We'll highlight those as we go. So I just came up with five points there to kind of unify verses 18 to 25. Let's go ahead and look at the first point. And that is the content of this preaching that Paul came with, that he gave to them, that they received, that they believed, that saved them, it transformed them, it enabled them to be born again, it prompted them to repent of their sin, it adopted them into the family of God, it brought the Holy Spirit to live in and dwell inside of them, it brought them into the body of Christ, it made them the church, this gospel that Paul preached, and they forgot that. And that's why he's giving this reminder. It's so basic. So these five points, point number one is the content of the preaching. It's this preaching, this preeminence of preaching over and against what the Corinthians were now thinking again that they used to before they got saved was the preeminence of eloquence, the, pre uh, the preeminence of rhetoric of the Greeks who stood around and debated with one another. That's what they did. They, that's how they spent their time. If you remember in Acts chapter 17, before Paul went to Athens and he was still in Greece, 
Uh, it says, as was at the beginning of Acts 17, as was Paul's custom. What does that mean? This is what he did. All, he didn't change. He always did the same thing. He went into a town. The first thing he looked for, I got to find me a synagogue. Why? Because as a rabbi, I can be a guest preacher anytime I want to. I've got a captive audience. So that's what, that was his strategy. So as was Paul's custom, he finds the local synagogue. They invited him in. He's the guest preacher. And what is he also, as a part, was his custom. He began reasoning with them. And it says explicitly, not reasoning with the principles of Plato, not reasoning with the principles of Aristotle or Socrates. He was reasoning with those in the synagogue, reasoning from the scriptures. His content came from one place and one place only, the divine revealed word of God in the scripture and the revelation he was receiving from Jesus as an apostle. He never deviated from that strategy. He never changed that strategy. He didn't accommodate himself to different audiences by changing his methodology and his message and the content of his message, whether it was a Gentile congregation, a Jewish congregation, a Greek congregation, or philosophers, it was the same thing as was his custom. He reasoned from the Scriptures, with the Scriptures, unto the Christ. That is clear in the book of Acts. As he's going from city to city in Greece. And sure enough, when he gets into Athens, same thing. First thing he did is he found a synagogue. He preaches there, and he's reasoning from the Scriptures. And it says he's reasoning from the Scriptures to show them that Jesus was the Christ. Well, after three days in the synagogue, what they do? They ran him out of the synagogue, pretty much. And from Athens, he sent his partners away. Silas and Timothy, hey, we'll meet you guys later, but I'm going to Corinth. He goes into Corinth. What does he do? He finds a synagogue once again. What does he do in the synagogue? He reasons from the Scripture, arguing that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts chapter 17, when he was in Athens, after he got chased out of the synagogue from the Jews, it said, then he went out to the public uh, courtyard and started talking to the unbelieving pagans the gentiles the greek philosophers it even mentions the philosophers by name the epicureans and others these philosophers and it says that these philosophers the way they pass their time i don't know how the time they must have been on welfare as far as i know because all they did is pass the time standing out in the street not working and they're just they're debating and they're disputing and they're theorizing and they're not talking about binding universal truth they're speculating with one another and they're sparring with one. Oh, that's a clever idea. Let me meditate on that. How profound. What a profound conjecture. Well, what do you think of this one? And they're spitballing back and forth, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's landing on any kind of universal binding truth whatsoever because they don't have any. Because they're ignoring what has been revealed to them through natural revelation. And they haven't received special revelation yet until Paul gets there. So Paul sees this crowd. Hey, those guys look, boy, the Jews don't want to talk to me. They're kicking me out of the synagogue. Those guys are talking with each other and they're kind of debating. And I wonder if they'll talk to me. So Paul goes up and starts intermingling with these Greek philosophers. And it says they spend their time just debating and talking and speculating and theorizing and conjecturing and asking questions and asking meaningless questions and meditating forever on meaningless questions and then asking more questions about their meaningless questions because that's how you pass the time. Well, wow, that was not the way they did things. I mean, the way Paul did things. Paul comes over there and instead of questioning and 
debating and dialoguing and conversing and joining the conversation. It says Paul came over and started preaching. Boy, that was arrogant. Boy, that's kind of different. But who are you? That's the word that's repeated over and over. Paul came preaching. He joined that group. He didn't want to get in the conversation. He came to proclaim truth. That's one of the key words in 1 Corinthians 1 is keruso, to proclaim. You know, literally what it means is to give an edict or a decree, to, to tell forth a binding decree from the greatest authority under your jurisdiction. You don't have a conversation about that. Well, let's discuss that. No, let's not. Let's consider that. No, let's not. In terms of debating it, whether I like it or not. And that's what Paul did. He came proclaiming. Here is the truth. It is binding universal truth from God Almighty. Everyone that hears it is accountable to it, regardless of where you're born or where you're at spiritually. And so here's Paul, and he is proclaiming. He is carousoing. He is, and a lot of other words, and he's teaching, didactic. He is taking truth and putting it in their mind. That's what, and it's an aggressive word that is used in the Greek text. And it's one-way communication, the words used there. Proclaiming, preaching, and teaching is one-way communication. So he's an agent. He is delivering truth. He uses the same another word in Galatians where it says he's placarding the truth. You know what that is? That's holding up a billboard, making a declaration. Here it is. Read it. Read it and be praised and believe or read it and weep. It was a message. What was the message that he was proclaiming and preaching and just in this one-way direction? It was the message of the cross. The message of the cross. And he's doing that with the Greek philosophers. And, you know, some of them were like, oh, this is intriguing. Oh, this is fascinating. Wait, wait, what's your name again? Paul? Some believed, very few. Most said, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You, you're... This is weird stuff. We never heard this stuff before. The content of what Paul was preaching to these uh, philosophers in Athens, it says he was preaching, I love this phrase, he was preaching Jesus to them. Preaching Jesus to them. What was preaching Jesus? That is the gospel. That is the message of the cross. And that's what Paul is bringing up right here. And what was their reaction? Well, some very few believed. Some said, well, we'll hear you again. And others spit in his face and despised him and said, hey, you're breaking the rules here. Who are you? You can't know definitive, binding, dogmatic truth from the gods. Who do you think you are? By the way, we've never heard this Jesus stuff before. You idle babbler. So they started calling him names. Similar to what Festus called Paul. Same thing when he's preaching Jesus to Festus, the, the Roman pagan in Acts chapter 26. And at the end, Festus said, Paul, I think your, your studying has made you a maniac, a maniacal, whacked-out goofball. It's the word he used, very specific, very demeaning, name-calling. As he was confronted with the person of Jesus Christ, see what it did? It bothered their conscience. It pricked their... No, it pierced their conscience. Preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Because if we start talking about Jesus and the gospel, you've got to start talking about a person's sin. This is the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say later. And what is the gospel? Yes, it's about Christ, this person they've never heard, but Christ died for sin. You've got to talk about death and sin. People don't want to hear that. Sinners don't want to hear that. It's an assault to human pride. And this is the culture out of which the Corinthians 
were saved. And many of them carried over their former life into their Christian life. Don't we all? The habits and the culture of our unsaved life we carry over into our Christian life. And part of sanctification is living life on earth until you die or Jesus comes of trying to undo and overcome and eradicate and run from and do whatever you can and be leached from all the yuck and stuff that you carried over from your former life into your Christian life. And so Paul wants to help them along in the sanctification process by these precious reminders. So the content of this preaching uh, that Paul wants to tell the Corinthians, remind them of it, it was the cross of Christ. So let's look at the beginning of verse 18. For the word of the cross, Corinthians, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, you Corinthians, pride yourself on knowledge and having knowledge, but you know what? What you consider knowledge is really foolishness. It's stupidity. It's idiocy. What true knowledge is, is the word of the cross. Different English translations say different things in verse 18 on the word of the cross. Some say the message of the cross, the preaching of the cross, the literal is the word of the cross. What is the word of the cross? The word of the cross is the gospel. That's the good news. He doesn't call it the gospel here because Paul wants to put a different emphasis on it. He'll put the word gospel at 1 Corinthians 15. Here he puts the word of the cross, the emphasis being on the word cross. Now, when the Corinthians, who were, by the way, mostly Roman citizens, politically speaking, legally speaking, that's the, the big umbrella is the Roman Empire. The culture is Greek. The legal estate in the umbrella is Roman. So many of these Corinthians are Roman citizens. If you're a Roman citizen, you know, as a matter of fact, that Roman citizens do not, cannot be executed by crucifixion. Roman citizens are above crucifixion. Anyone that gets executed by crucifixion is beneath the right to be a citizen of Rome. So can you imagine what, how this confronted their sensibilities? When he's saying, boy, the first and foremost thing you need to remember that you forgot is the cross of Christ, the execution of the cross. And all that could, it's startling to hear this. The, wow, the crucifixion, what a reminder. We're Roman citizens. We, we don't deserve, no, no Roman citizen should be executed by the cross. That's, uh, the cross was a form of execution. It was the most painful form of execution. Typically, not only was it the most painful, but also the most shameful and humiliating form of execution. And the most painful, the most shameful, reserved for the most notorious, hideous, despicable criminals. A typical crucifixion, you got your sentence, and then you had to carry part of the beam of your cross, of your ex that'd be like... Okay, you are guilty and you shall die by the gas chamber. Here is your chair. You must drag this through the city a thousand yards in front of everybody in broad daylight. Then we will hook you up to the, the chair. We'll strap you down. We'll shove stuff in your mouth. We'll hook up the electrodes. And we're going to crank it slowly so you die over a period of time. And it will be gruesome and the whole world will watch. The equivalent of that was crucifixion on a cross. So this is what the Greeks know. This is what the Roman citizens know. This is horrible. 
oh yeah, wow, we were saved and changed by somebody who died as a criminal on a cross, who wasn't even a Roman citizen. What a shameful, shameful, despised form of death. And like I said, it was it was painful, just utterly a typical crucifixion. Many times they'd tie them on the, the cross and leave them hanging there for days because they wouldn't always necessarily put nails into their hands and feet, not necessarily. And Jesus got beat up pretty good before his crucifixion, which wasn't always typical. They had a special animus for Christ and beat him up thoroughly before he even got executed on the cross. Sometimes these people on these crosses would be hanging out there for days, stripped naked in front of their family, friends, their entire town. Shameful. Painful. The worst kind of death execution. That's why here in America we have a, a rule or a law that we can't execute people by cruel and unusual punishment. And the cross was the epitome of cruel and unusual punishment. That is the cross that our that is the death that our Savior died. And that's just from the Greek point of view. It was utterly despised, the cross, the message of the cross. But also for the Jews, being executed on a cross was a despicable thing. The primary way of execution for the Jews was stoning to death or burning by fire and stoning to death, which, you know, typically the way they did it, it's probably over rather quickly. And then the body is gone and instantly buried automatically under a heap of rocks. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, in the event that you should actually execute a criminal who deserves to be executed, and you happen to do it by hanging him on a tree, take him down quickly, because he who hangs on a tree is accursed of God. He who hangs on a tree is despised by God. That's why Galatians, Peter, talk about our blessed Savior and they remind us from Deuteronomy. Remember what God's Word says about somebody who gets executed by crucifixion. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And that's the wisdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ came willingly, not as a helpless victim to die on the cross. He came to die. That was the purpose to die on the cross. He planned it himself in eternity past. He willingly came here at, the, at his birth. It was prophesied that he would die, that he would be pierced through, said Simeon to Mary in Luke chapter 2. When he's just a couple of weeks old, Jesus came to die. In fulfillment of the scriptures, all the way from Genesis 3.15, where it was announced for the first time that, that he would be pierced. And then 1,000 B.C. when Psalm 22, where it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In verse 16, it says, They pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before Christ died, before crucifixion was even invented and in vogue, God prophesied Jesus would die a cursed death by crucifixion. Absolutely amazing. And then 700 B.C., Isaiah 53, the entire chapter is a detailed description of Jesus' execution by crucifixion and how God the Father was punishing Him on the cross for the sins of His people. And at the end of it, it promises life through the resurrection and all who would believe. That, that's the wisdom of God. That was His plan. That was His methodology to overcome the greatest ailments and the problems in the world. It's not through intellectual pursuit. 
the wisdom of man, human philosophy, what we can do, what we can initiate. It is the wisdom of God is initiated by God and God alone. It is reaching down to sinful, helpless people, sinners who cannot save themselves. God as the creator and in his love, a holy God who must punish sin, reaches out in love and in mercy, chasing sinners down, calling them to himself, asking them to recognize their sin and recognize they can't save themselves. But God, the loving creator, has provided the solution to punish sin that deserves to be punished by God Himself coming down here in the form of a human Jesus Christ, willingly going to the cross, being executed, accursed by God the Father as He hung on the cross, as the Father pours out His full fury on Jesus as the substitute of sin. And any sinner that would believe that Jesus died as their substitute and repent of their sin and cry out for forgiveness, asking God, save me, the sinner. God would answer immediately and He saves sinners. That is the gospel message. That is the wisdom of God. That is the wisdom that this world knows nothing about because it is all revealed and initiated by God. And today it is in the Word of God in Scripture. It is the only solution for humanity and all of humanity's problems. And I'm talking about real life problems, whatever your problems are, whatever you're suffering with right now, or people you know in your family, what they're suffering with and dealing with in life. The only ultimate eternal solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death on behalf of sinners, because he was the God man who willingly died. He raised again himself from the dead in power and glory. He ascended on high. Jesus Christ reigns as the judge and savior of the universe over the world right now, reaching out, calling sinners to come to himself and be saved and to be adopted into his family. That is the message of the cross of Christ. That is the gospel, the good news. That is the preaching of Jesus and all these other phrases. That is the wisdom of God in verse 24. That is the power of God in verse 24. That's the foolishness of God as well. It is the weakness of God because it is despised by those who don't believe. And those of you who have Come to a point where you've recognized and realized that, yes, I am a sinner. I am sinful to the core. I didn't become sinful. I was born into this world sinful, depraved, and an enemy of God and separated from Him as a holy God. And then God moved on your heart with the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel and probably using it through some believer. And we were warmed and softened and God brought us to Himself and there was a day where we were convicted and the blinders fell off and we saw the truth and we recognized that yes, we are sinners and Jesus is the Savior. And you embraced the Gospel message. You embraced the cross. You embraced the truth that Jesus was condemned for you, accursed of God for you. And you became a Christian. You were saved. All your sins were wiped away. This became the new glorious wisdom from above, I want to close with Romans 1.16. Let's go ahead and look at it because it's such a great reminder of, of the power. Because in verse, uh, as you're turning to Romans 1, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word of the cross. So all that, that I just went off for 10 minutes about the gospel, the word of the cross, what I just said, the message that saves, that is the greatest beloved truth that a Christian knows, the unbelieving world thinks it is stupidity and idiotic. It is moronic. That is the Greek word, moronic. It is foolishness. It's what they believe. It's foolish. Yet Paul says, well, but if, you're, if you have believed, it's not foolishness. It is power. It is power. And so that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So let's 
close with this wonderful verse. Romans 1.16, a glorious reminder. Boy, what a way to get filled up on this truth and meditate on it all day long and all week long and going to lunch. Man, you're already full with this great blessed truth before you even get to the lunch table. You don't need dessert today. You're full on this beloved blessed truth. Of Romans 1.16, for the Apostle Paul says, For I, the Apostle Paul, as a Christian, am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news, of the cross, the message of the cross. The good news about Jesus dying as the substitute for sinners as the God-man. That is the message he is not ashamed of. Why? Because that message is the power. By the way, the gospel is not a message about God's power. The gospel is power. That's a profound difference. The gospel is not an argument. The gospel is power, life-changing truth. I am not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. By the way, there is power from God to save in nothing else than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not human speculation, not the laws of logic, not erudition. Not pre-evangelism, blah, 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 blah. It is the power of God in the gospel and the gospel alone. It is the only power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Notice you don't work for it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. That's where the Greeks were wrong. It is absolutely minus anything having to do with humanity. It is not anthropocentric. It is all God-centered, Christ-centered. It is all of Him and none of us. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, anyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What a great and blessed truth. Pray with me as we go to God and thank Him for this great truth, a simple truth, profound and life-changing truth. Father, we thank You for this day and our time of corporate worship together. We, as its song says, we thank you for the cross. And we as believers, informed by the Bible, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, we know what that means. Thank you, Father, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand these uh, supernatural truths that came from heaven that we can't understand on our own. We are helpless. We need your help. And we thank you for the simple gospel message. Thank you, Lord Jesus, as you reign from heaven now. Thank you for loving us, for pursuing us and hounding us with your truth. Thank you for the people you put in our life to give us the truth and the gospel. Thank you for convicting us and bringing us to repentance and bringing us to a point of believing this amazing truth that we can be saved from our sins and adopted into your family forever. God, help us to not be distracted as we meditate on that truth the rest of this day, the rest of this week. We pray it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.